Hallelujah. Yes, Father, we rejoice as we read your scriptures, recording, documenting the timeline of your sovereign hand, wherein Emmanuel was fulfilled in the fullness of the ages when Christ our Lord was born of a Virgin Mary. Furthermore, we thank you that the promise of Emmanuel has come true in the heart of every true confessing believer in this place today. You are with us. You have sent your spirit to dwell us when we were regenerated and born again. You came to us, Lord, in the most personal way possible, transforming our souls and now abiding with us unto eternity and forever. We thank you that this promise of Emmanuel that was from ages past proclaimed in the mystery of your will from eternity past, your perfect plan has come to pass not only in history, but in our own hearts. This morning, as we open your scriptures, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive them. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our souls and strengthen the weak knees and equip the church to be strong and courageous, to be bold and to be consistent, to be obedient, to be faithful and to be, Lord, about the business of occupying and proclaiming the knowledge of your kingdom until you come. We thank you for your faithfulness to us this year. And as tomorrow marks a turn in our calendar, we also note that you and your kindness and your long suffering and your steadfast love have never left us, not forgotten us, never failed us. But on the contrary, you have over and abundantly beyond what we could ask or think, answered our prayers, encouraged our souls, maintained this universe by the word of your power, upheld and steadied the pillars of the earth for the sake of your people and your goodness and your, and your a plan, Lord, on into history future. For these things and so much more, we are thankful. We thank you for your word and we pray that you would write it on our hearts this day, that your word would be a beacon for us this week and this next year, Lord, to guide and direct us, that we would apply it and, and we would conform to it, repent to its standard, and proclaim its truth to those who are lost and in need of a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Hallelujah. This morning, on the eve of a new year, it's appropriate to turn to the scriptures to provide for us perspective and context for how to faithfully serve our Lord all the more in 2024, as we have sought to do in 2023. So in the spirit of a message fitting for New Year's Eve, I'm going to be jumping off from Genesis 49 and touching on two other major portions of the scripture as we seek to trace this morning the fortunes of two tribes of Jacob, that would be Zebulun and Naphtali. Turn with me as you're able to Genesis 49, 13 through 21 will be our primary and beginning text or opening passage this morning. The title of this morning's message is Hope Grows Brighter. And my thesis is, and these three reference points in scripture, that we can see the hope for Zebulun and Naphtali and who they represent growing stronger as God's plan in history unfolds. Therefore, the aim of this morning's sermon is to encourage our souls by this example as we behold Christ's dominion over history. Our souls are encouraged, our spirits are lifted, our confidence is strengthened as we behold Jesus Christ in charge of time, his dominion over history. With that introduction and your hearts open to receive the word of God with reverence, would you stand as you're able and let us consider Genesis 49. And the legacy and prophecy of Jacob's dying song over his sons 
several of them this morning, beginning in verse 13 through 21. Here is the word of God. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. 19. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we mentioned last time, we're covering the legacy of Judah. The language of a passage like this may strike us as curious and unfamiliar, in part because uh, Jacob, in this poetry, uses metaphor from the nature, animal kingdom, to describe certain aspects of character that he sees and proclaims over his sons. Digging into those a bit and following the thread of God's revelation through the scriptures, however, will yield treasure, I trust, and thus my goal to reveal some of that for us this morning as we seek to learn the lesson from Zebulun, Naphtali, and the tribes in between that Jacob speaks over at this time in his life. Our sermon title, Hope Grows Brighter, proclaims the message of history. We've remarked through our Genesis series that a philosophy of history biblically is time measured by the progress of redemption. That is, we mark time as Christians according to God's purposes to save his people. Those are the reference points. Those are the milestones. That's why our calendar, A.D., B.C., is a Christian way to mark history. It's because it recognizes that God's intervention in time with the coming of Jesus Christ represents a shift. And now everything against the reference point of the chief cornerstone changes after the incarnation. History is what? It's a stage to reveal the glory of God. And history is what? It's a stage more precisely to reveal the glory of God in saving a people, a people who in time fell in Adam and Eve and in time received the sovereign, their savior, who could ransom them from this, great heart, from this great death that they incurred in blood poisoning the human race, Jesus Christ, in his coming. With every year that passes thus, with each year, the consummation of the kingdom of God looms ever closer. That is the fullness of his salvation manifest. Everything that he promised and everything that Jesus secured on Calvary coming to pass in time. This is history. So in accordance with this reality of God's sovereign purposes and his plan unfolding in time, according to his eternal decree, so the light of revelation, the knowledge of his plan, that clarity intensifies with those with eyes of faith trained to behold its shining. That is to say, if our eyes of faith and understanding are open, the more we witness of history, the more we witness the plan of God, obvious and unmistakable. And this is the way the Bible uh, illuminates the sovereignty of God. That is, the further time marches on, 
the more of his glory is revealed. And so as we look upon the evidence of God's sovereign hand, even in our own record of time since the close of the canon, we likewise, with this light of revelational clarity, can see more intensely still how God is working in our lives and in history for our good and his glory. This is what we realize when our spirits rise above the immediate day-to-day stressful schedule and challenges that usually occupy, if we're not careful, in the flesh, all of our time and attention. When we rise above the immediate challenges of our experience, we view things from the perspective of covenant history, and Scripture helps us to do this. And thus, our devotion to this continuity, that is the story of God's purposes through history, the continuity of God's prophecy coming to pass in greater Scripture, this provides us a means to lift ourselves up. I think we can use this. We can use this uplifting means, can we not? Why? Because we're tempted to grow discouraged if we look too closely at the immediate circumstances and despair at what they might mean. The bigger picture of history allows us to see God's sovereign hand, and the scriptures are recorded over many, many years to provide us this perspective. Hence, my aim in preaching today, encourage our souls by beholding Christ's uh, dominion over history, Christ in charge of time. Now, as for the context of our passage, we're reminded today, as we mentioned before, that legacy, lineage, and reputation are concerns perhaps usually most compelling as one approaches death's door. Jacob is about to die. Uh, Dying loved ones' last words and our eulogies upon their passing They reflect our hopes and values for what might live on, death notwithstanding. What will we be known for? What will we be known and remembered for? These are questions that come up and are answered, at least attempts to answer them at funerals and marks of memorial at times significant in life, like the passing of a family member. As Jacob speaks in our passage today from his deathbed, We have his last words, so to speak. But it's important to note, these are striking. These are not musings of memorable sentiment or generic inspiration. This, rather, is God's word. God is speaking through the patriarch turned prophet in this moment. The patriarch Jacob summons the last of his strength to prophesy over this infant nation. And thus there is significance to these words beyond an ordinary funeral. They mark a milestone for God's purposes in his people. And we will seek to learn from that today. Let me give you a heading, three signs of hope for Jacob's ordinary sons. I submit to you that Zebulun, Naphtali, and the tribes in between in this section represent a category of Israel Jacob's ordinary sons. He also has extraordinary sons. Two of them are highlighted in the record here. The first is Judah. Of him, a king will arise. The second is Joseph. He's a picture of Christ in many ways. Well, we also have more for other, more forget, forgettable names, if you will, less memorable in that the time and attention and the prophetic significance isn't so directly connected to them. These are the Zebulins of the world, if you will, of the time. These are the Issachars, the Dans, the Naphtali's, the gads, what can we say of them? Well, here we have a candle, so to speak, I'm going to submit, a flickering light of hope. This is the first sign of hope for Jacob's ordinary sons. This is a patriarch's dying prayer. 
and it does signal hope for Zebulun, Naphtali, and other tribes, but we have to look at the rest of the scriptures to see how this hope will burn brighter still and how it unfolds in time. Zebulun and Naphtali, who are they? This section of Jacob's song is bracketed by these two tribes. Verses 13 through 21 portend the future, I submit, of the ordinary people of God. You've maybe heard or read Bible stories, you know, from or like an interpretation in a child, you know, book form of, say, David versus Goliath. And the tendency of other preachers, I'm not the first to note this, of course, is to sort of uh, see yourself as the hero. Well, be like David or you're like David, take your smooth stone, slay your giants and so forth. Well, a closer analysis of the text and a more sober reading of ourselves in light of Scripture might provide a better answer to where are we in the story. Are we a Joseph? Are we a Judah? Do we see ourselves as the hero of the story? Are we more like Zebulun and Naphtali? And that's what I submit to you today. Where are we in the story? We are like the ordinary sons of Jacob, if you will. We are like the church, or we are the church, and the church of all ages is similar to these Jacob's sons at that time. Who is the church? One definition, the church is made up of believers who have been regenerated, their hearts have been changed, and this is evidenced by their faith in redemption, sovereignly provided, salvation that God will provide to restore them, ultimately to relationship with God, to covenant relationship with God. The church is made up of those whose hearts have been changed. We know they're born again because we see evidence of their faith that salvation has been provided for them. And that salvation, Jesus Christ born to die for them, will and has restored them to relationship with the Lord. Now this could be said of the church in every age. Even the ordinary sons of Jacob, they too had a candle, though flickering compared to the full light that we have today, nevertheless, they had hope for salvation that would arise when a king would come from the line of Judah, or one would rule like Joseph did in his wisdom. And thus, following Jacob's lament and prayer, they, if they listened to the word of God, would wait for the salvation of the Lord. Zebulun and Naphtali, the ordinary sons of Jacob, were not without hope. In his dying prayer, he signals that there is salvation in the future. There is something that they and all the people of God of all the ages are waiting for, the fullness of redemption, when the fullness of the relationship that was lost in sin would be restored. <clears throat> Therefore, they have hope, yes. And these symbols, and uh, Zebulun and Naphtali then, become a symbol of the people of God awaiting the fullness of salvation. Zebulun and Naphtali are representatives of people who are hoping that God will and have faith that God will in due time bring his answers to their heart cry, save us, O Lord. The answer to Jacob's lament in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. <clears throat> now, in the meantime, Jacob speaks to the legacy of these tribes in three categories. The legacy of Zebulun, Naphtali, and those in between will be marked <clears throat> for generations in one or more of three categories. These tribes will be known for the following. Uh, number one, 
<coughs> provisional blessing. Number two, cultural sinfulness. And number three, conflict. So let's look at this imagery he uses, first of all, with Zebulun himself in verse 13. Jacob says, Zebulun, you shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Now, if you look through the unfolding of the destiny of the tribes, <clears throat> you will find what Jacob says corresponding with much of the record later. As far as Zebulun is concerned, this language speaks to an economic vitality. There will be trade and there will be a sharing of border with prosperous Gentile peoples. There will be uh, commerce and the people will enjoy the, as I say, provisional blessings of God. God will provide their daily bread and that they will be a hub for shipping. Uh, exports and imports will come in to their land. Secondly, Dan. Verse 16 falls into this provisional category as well. Of Dan, we read, he shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel in that verse. Dan will have a legacy of leadership. One of the famous judges, most famous perhaps, judge from the Danites will arise in due time during the period of the judges. And super strong guy, kids, maybe you remember his name. He lifted the gates one time and brought them up a hill. He, uh, do you guys remember this guy's name? Yes, Samson, thank you. Samson, the famous Danite, certainly a gift for leadership. He was set apart by vow early on. His parents were visited by the angel of the Lord. They were told that a leader will arise from them. But Samson is not the sterling example of leadership that we see in Joseph or in the Judah to come. Samson is fraught with all kinds of problems. He is one of these ordinary sons of Jacob who arises, yes, there's a provisional blessing he has strength sovereignly given to him and a calling to lead God's people. But also, the legacy of Samson, much like the legacy of God's people through this era, is a mixed bag. It's marked with the stains of sin and the contamination of the flesh and the temptation that he easily succumbs to. And thus, the roller coaster ride of troubled leadership continues through the ages as the people await for their salvation. There might have been a few who thought, this great man with this uncanny strength, perhaps he is our Messiah who will bring this ultimate deliverance. Perhaps he is the incarnation of the hope of Jacob's prophecy revealed. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. That the people's hopes are dashed as he marries with the pagans and fraternizes with evil and eventually is captured by the Philistines and kills more in his death than he did while he was alive and inconsistently arises to the call to be a leader. So this is provisional blessing. It's not ultimate. Asher, there's agricultural blessing that he represents. Verse 20, food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies, it's said of him. So in Asher, there's farming, there's prosperity. There's achievements in this regard that are fit for a kingdom. And this is a provisional blessing to be sure. And he is joined by Naphtali, of him, it's said in verse 21, he is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. And this language is a little mysterious, but let me give you a quote from a commentary, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. They, and he summarizes, this commentary summarizes of Naphtali that he would be located in a territory so fertile and peaceable that feeding on the richest pasture, he would spread out like a deer 
branching antlers. So there's this picture of freedom, a deer being able to romp around, and uh, there's this picture of fruitfulness, bearing fruitful fawns and so forth. But again, would this freedom and fruitfulness be the, of the ultimate sort? No, it would prove in time to be merely a provisional blessing. So in the patriarch's dying prayer, there's a candle of hope. God will provide for his people. He will provide economic needs, daily bread. He will provide leadership for them. However, it won't be the leader, the king of kings. It will be come, kind of come and go. There will be cycles of, of a hope and dysfunction. He will provide for their day-to-day needs in the basic tilling of the land and taking dominion in the natural way. And there will be periods of freedom and, and, and joy and uh, fruitfulness that they will enjoy. But this will not ultimately be the great salvation. The great salvation that Zebulun, Dan, Nasher, uh, Asher, and Naphtali will look for, uh, look for will not come through them or these means, but by a different way. There to look for the son of Judah, whose scepter and rod shall never be pried from his eternal grasp. Secondly, cultural sinfulness. Uh, the legacy of these tribes, represented by Naphtali and Zebulun, will be marked furthermore by a sinfulness culturally. And we see this playing out in the history of Israel for hundreds of years, and it's typified in the message over Issachar, verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching beneath, uh, between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. What could this mean? Well, it's not for lack of ability and strength that Issachar became a servant, became a slave. No, it's for lack of faithfulness to the duty and calling of dominion. As the people of God entered the land, Issachar and others would join in this principle, unfaith- principle of unfaithfulness as well. They often failed to rise to the challenge to root out the wickedness and the evil around them. God had given them the means to do so, the calling and leadership of Joshua, his word and promise that he would attend them on the way, and they were to learn to be strong and to be uh, assertive and removing the wickedness from the land. But as uh, time passed, it was more likely the case that the people would fraternize, intermarry, compromise, and grow lax in this regard, to fail to take spiritual dominion over the land, to be negligent in their duty, to be faithful to the task and the challenge, though there be giants in the land, giants spiritually and even physically to some degree, to trust the Lord that he would give them that disproportionate strength to force out the evil. And Nyasikar failed to do this, and others joined in this regard along the way. And what happened? Well, Issachar and others, their negligence in duty bred slavery to sin and slavery to sinners. There's an application here, isn't there? Remember I said we can relate to the ordinary sons of Jacob. Are we like this? Though God has given us the means, though he has given us the calling, we don't lack for capacity and strength. Nevertheless, we lack often in the spiritual initiative, in the conviction and the consistency. And we are often lulled to sleep and laid down in apathy by relative ease and we end up trading responsibility for slavery. We don't rise to take dominion of our territory. We lie down on the job often. And this principle remains true for us as it did for Issachar in our complacency and in our negligence, our soul, our families, 
our churches, our communities, and our nation, our negligence spiritually, what does it breed? Slavery to sin and slavery to sinners. We are called in the light of this temptation to lay down on the job, to reject into, uh, this tendency and to instead repent and to rise up and to occupy until Christ comes. We are waiting too. We're in an intermediate phase as well. Christ has come, but he will come again. And so like Issachar, in the in-between time, we are called uh, to use the means and tools and opportunity and strength and commands that God has given us, not to rest in a place that is good, in the land that is pleasant, not to bow our shoulder down to bear, become a servant of forced labor, not to trade a responsibility uh, for uh, security and assurance and thus become slaves to ourselves or to other sinners, but instead to be strong and to be consistent like that beast of burden that is faithful to the master and dies uh, faithful uh, to the Lord in chugging on and forward and pressing in and occupying, like Paul says, for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ, I press on towards that upward call. This is a principle that we can relate to both in our tendency and our sin, and also the calling to repent. This is a cultural sinfulness that affected the ordinary sons of Jacob at this time, Zebulun and Naphtali, and those in between were often characterized by negligence in their calling and duty. They needed salvation. Salvation not just from their enemies around, but salvation from themselves and their tendency in this regard. Finally, the legacy of these tribes will be marked by provisional blessing, cultural sinfulness, and thirdly, conflict. Note Dan in verse 17. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. Here in this poetic language of Dan, it is said that he will have strategy in battle. His legacy in part will be an outsized power. So you think typically of a snake as something bad. A lot of times in scripture, the devil and his wiles are pictured as a serpent. But here there's an additional picture, and that is one that a snake can sometimes strike fear into an um, animal or a, you know, a creature much larger than itself and can upset a horse. And as the horse notices this viper along the path, let's say, uh, then suddenly it is startled, perhaps breaks a heel and is lame and rendering its rider without that implement of war. So there will be conflict in Dan. There's provisional blessing in that Dan will have some strategic bat, uh, advantage in battle. But nevertheless, the history of the people of God as represented by this example will be marked by war, by battle, by skirmishes, by strife, and by the need to be alert and to be aware and to trust that God will save him uh, during times like this. And then in verse 19, similarly of Gad, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Once again, conflict is in view. Gad is both the victim and the victor in the piracy of war. Sometimes his enemies will come in and raid him, and at other times the tables will be turned, and he will loot and plunder his enemies. Now, we can see that there, uh, during these times, there's sort of a mixture. There will be some times of victory. There will be times of defeat. There will be sin that tends to crop up. There will be provisional blessings. But this is a time that Jacob is prophesying, characterized by his ordinary sons, that is in desperate need, all things being said, 
of salvation and deliverance. In summary, Jacob's somber words for the coming centuries, as illustrated by his prophecy over his sons, these illustrate the pre-Messiah conditions in Israel. Before the Messiah comes, while Jacob's ordinary sons wait for their deliverance, there are provisional blessings, but they're fraught with the sinfulness, both in the individual and the society that keeps cropping up, and they're dealing with conflict time and again through the course of their history. These, uh, the, so the coming centuries, Jacob realizes by the Spirit of God, will be marked by these pre-Messiah conditions. In spite of the provisional blessings, sustaining them along the way, Jacob's song foretells a legacy for his children that will become well acquainted with gloom, anguish, contempt, darkness, oppression, and war. Gloom, anguish, contempt, darkness, oppression, and war. The ordinary sons of Jacob will know all of these in the coming centuries. Yet, there is hope in the patriarch's dying prayer. A candle flickers. An eternal ray of light will break through the clouds of ordinary history. Just as this ray of light breaks through in verse 18. And this portion of Jacob's song, which we've identified, is the theme. Verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. The clouds of this difficult time that Jacob prophesies, a ray of light breaks through, a candle of hope flickers, awaiting for the coming salvation of the Lord. This brings us to point number two. From a candle, we now behold a beacon, if you will. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. So again, to remind you, what are we doing? We're tracing the fortunes of Zebulun and Naphtali. We're beholding them, according to Scripture's patterns here, as a representative people of the church, if you will, the ordinary people of God that await his salvation. We pick up on their story in the prophets as well. And the next passage is one of these. It's a beacon, a prophetic oracle. Whereas the patriarch had prophesied in Genesis 49, now the prophet proclaims to these ordinary sons of Jacob. In Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, Perhaps you'll be more familiar with these words. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought contempt, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, the candle now becomes a beacon, I parenthetically add. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The candle of hope flickering in Jacob's dying song now becomes a beacon, hope growing brighter through the prophetic oracle of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies, speaks over a Zebulun and Naphtali, and he says, your legacy won't just be marked by that ordinary history that for centuries has been the reality now, provisional blessing, cultural sinfulness, and conflict. But no, something more is yet on the horizon. The answer to Jacob's lament, salvation awaits Zebulun and Naphtali. They have more to look forward to than these cycles of sinfulness that they can never seem to shake. A Messiah will come. There will be a cosmic, if you will, turning point. History will be broken through with the ray of God's sunshine. The incarnation is prophesied in verse 1. Notice, in the former time, what would that be? Pre-Messiah. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That relates to the legacy that Jacob prophesies. But, he says, in the what? Latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. A cosmic turning point will come for the fortunes of the ordinary sons, the church of Jesus Christ, those awaiting his salvation. Something will happen. History will be invaded by a hope so significant that forever it will be known as the former time and the latter time. The incarnation, the arrival of Jesus Christ, a shift in the fortunes of those who await him. Zebulun and Naphtali, beleaguered through years of sorrow and anguish, now will rejoice and hope at this moment. An epic transformation is also prophesied, and the remaining or in the preceding verses speak to this, verses two through five. Very quickly, Zebulun and Naphtali, they will go from darkness to light. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep, deep darkness, on them a light has shined. They will experience, furthermore, overwhelming joy. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. A joy that Zebulun and Naphtali have never yet known will visit them on this day of latter times when the Messiah comes. Furthermore, verse 4, they will experience deliverance from their longstanding and their uh, oppression pathologically in their souls on the inside and on the outside with their enemies declaring dominion over them. It says of them, for the yoke of his burden, whose burden? Zebulun, Naphtali, those who are victims of ordinary history, those who live in a fallen world, those who have labored with a flickering hope while history awaits for the promises of God to be fully revealed. For them one day the yoke of their burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of their oppressor shall be broken as in the day of Midian. That is the day when God raised up Gideon to defeat in one fell swoop, in one moment of significance, all the armies and one glorious and supernatural declaration of victory. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
if you will, a war to end all wars, a cosmic battle and conflict that will declare victory over the enemy thus, such that he will never rise again. When Jesus Christ defeated death on Calvary, these words were fulfilled. And he announced as much just before that moment happened when he said, it is finished. What was finished? Well, among other things, the plan of redemption secured in his death on Calvary, the lamb was slain, but also the enemy was finished. No longer would he hold that ultimate uh, judgment over the head of sinners in the form of hopeless death, despair, and hell because the yoke and the staff and the rod of our greatest enemy was broken when Jesus rose from the dead and every boot of the tramping warrior and all the battle tumult and all the conflict and oppression that plagues the human race, all of that would be rolled up in one bundle and eventually burned on the fire of either God's purifying holiness for his people or his judgment against his enemies. Cosmic turning point bringing epic transformation. And then Isaiah prophesies in this beacon, the coronation, the crowning ceremony of the Messiah. He says of him, verse 8, this is Jesus revealed, for to us a child is born, son of man. To us a son is given, son of God, human and divine. The government shall be upon his shoulder. All of the world will bow before this king of kings. One day in due time, every tribe will confess, every, every tribe will proclaim, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that he is Lord in due course. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This is our Lord Jesus. Not one name is sufficient to contain all his beautiful character. No, but compounding, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, prophet adds uh, name upon name to describe the glories of the Messiah to come. Mighty God, everlasting Father, progenitor, that is, and sustainer of all creation, Prince of Peace. Then he goes on of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The coronation of the Messiah, the depth of his nature pictured in these glorious names. Consider just for instance, Prince of Peace, in light of that moment when his birth was announced, as we referenced recently on the night of Christmas when Jesus was born. What did the angels from glory proclaim? They said, today unto you is born tonight in a manger, the Son of God, in so many words, you'll find him laying there wrapped in swaddling cloths, right? And then they begin to sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who can bring this kind of peace? This is the reconciliation of relationship with God that we were talking before. Only the Messiah, only a child born, only a son given, only the one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace can restore that relationship broken in the garden in our sinfulness. Only He can do it, and so He is the Prince of Peace. This cosmic turning point, this epic transformation, this coronation of the Messiah signaling the depth of His nature with all these compounding names and indeed the reach of His realm. This is Judah fulfilled and prophesied. He's the heir to David's throne. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it, and there will be no end. And then finally, the grounds of our assurance. How do we know this will come to pass? What certainty do we have? Is it the certainty that Issachar will hopefully one day rise up and do the right thing? 
and vanquish her enemies beyond her borders? Is it the hope of Samson that when he arises, this great strong man will deliver us from the Philistines once and for all? These hopes rise and fall with the sinfulness of mere humans. But no, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If God has set his mind to something such that in his inspiration, motivation, and zeal, he will accomplish it, it will happen with utmost certainty to every jot and tittle, to the fulfillment of every prophecy, to above and beyond what we could ever imagine, absolutely certain. So the hope for Zebulun and Naphtali grows brighter, does it not? As history unfolds, those awaiting the Messiah are now seeing the light burn brighter. It was a candle, so to speak, during the days of the patriarch's dying prayer, but now it's a beacon, if you will, a lighthouse. I love the imagery of, light, of a lighthouse. I noticed a, a story I was attracted to recently that the last uh, human-maintained lighthouse uh, was no longer going to be a thing, and that at the turn of the year, a lady who's maintained this Boston something lighthouse is going to retire. She's like pretty old, and uh, we have the technology now that you no longer have to actually live at the lighthouse to maintain that beacon. I love lighthouses. I've always enjoyed the allure of the sea. But with the allure of the sea and the mystery and the adventure that the sea represents also comes great dangers. And among them, the land itself, especially at night. What purpose does a lighthouse serve? What purpose does that beacon serve? Two things. It announces to you land is nigh. And the sailor, you know, who is uh, growing low on rations and is hoping he's going the right direction. He has set his instruments accordingly. When that beacon of light shines on the horizon, he gets that reassurance, yes, land is nigh. And secondly, that beacon signals, watch out, as you approach the shore and your destination, avoid the rocks. And the prophecy is like that. Land is nigh, but avoid the rocks. As we await for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, look to the beacon of Holy Scripture so that you avoid the rocks at Issachar, was dashed upon in his negligence, but also realized that land is nigh, that Christ rules and reigns, his kingdom is established. He is the forever son of David upon his throne right now, and with him his kingdom will be consummated as hope grows brighter still, even in our time, one year closer to his kingdom come and his will be done fully, finally, and ultimately on this earth as it is in heaven. And lastly this morning, when would this come true? We trace the fortunes of Zebulun and Naphtali from the patriarch to the prophets to the Messiah, to the apostles, if you will. Turn with me in closing to Matthew chapter 4. Perhaps you already anticipated this passage because here again, Zebulun and Naphtali receive a brighter light still. As Zechariah himself prophesies at the birth of John the Baptist, I believe in Luke chapter 1, he talks about the arrival of the Messiah like a sunrise that dawns on the darkness of humanity. And this sunrise came with the thunderclap of glory when Jesus Christ was born. And the fullness of his shining light was only more evident with each stage that was inaugurated of his redemptive plan. And we see three of them back to back in our passage here as the scriptures unfold. But note first in reading, let's consider these words of fulfillment. Matthew 4, 13 through 17. This is speaking of Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, where? By the sea, 
Oh, that should ring a bell. In the territory of who? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hallelujah. Point three, a candle, a beacon, and now a sunrise. The sunrise has come and dawned upon humanity. The light of the world incarnate. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the documented fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah 9 are here recorded for us. We mentioned how it was fitting that as Israel, the sons of Jacob, the ordinary sons, looked for the great shepherd, it's fitting that among his first disciples were a group of shepherds. It's also fitting that we are waiting for this great light to dawn on Zebulun and Naphtali, that the wise men were guided to that light by a light in the celestial heavens. There's so many of these amazing details in the scriptures that provide this prophetic glory and continuity as we see the signature and the forensic analysis, if you will, of the sovereign hand of God shaping history as a stage to reveal his glory and fulfilling the prophecies of old. It's amazing. Even the first footsteps that Jesus traveled while he proclaimed in his teaching ministry, the very location of where he first opened his mouth is of significance. He went way north. He didn't go to the central hub of information where everybody was there gathered, but instead he went to the, fulfill, the area that was prophesied of darkness, gloom, tempest. And in, in, by this time, there was a mixed race up there. There were Gentiles. These were the outcasts. These are the ones that society had forgotten. They were looked upon as those who were not welcomed and celebrated as the highest and most important of society. Quite the opposite. But here Jesus goes, fulfilling the words of Isaiah 9, that in Zebulun and Naphtali, the ordinary sons of Jacob, plagued through the years by gloom, anguish, contempt, darkness, oppression, and war, on them a light has dawned. And they were privileged to first receive the words of Jesus Christ proclaiming the message of the kingdom, repent, for my realm is among you. My kingdom has come. Come be my subjects. And those with ears to hear, obeyed and became his subjects. If you have become his subject, you can relate to their experience. You an outcast, a Gentile, Zebulun, Naphtali, the outlying regions, not privileged either in history, location, or birth to be among the in-group preference crowd that society celebrates as the most important. But no, like Mary, perhaps you can relate that God is pleased to glorify himself in exalting the lowly and bringing down the proud. And me, I can join, relate to Zebulun and Naphtali because I heard the word of God maybe opened up to me in family devotions as a child in my home, proclaimed to me that one sermon I remember from years ago where the cross struck my heart and it hit the resonant pitch of my sinful soul and caused me to repent and to believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. He died for my sins. And if that has happened to you, then the light, as Paul says, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ 
through the proclamation of the gospel has touched you, even in the outlying regions, so to speak. The land here in Cross Lake compared to that of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Notice in the context here, if you study a bit preceding this text, you'll find that Jesus was anointed for ministry at his baptism. Shortly after, 40 days of starvation, and then he's tested in the wilderness. I'd have thought of this phrase this week. What Adam failed to do on a full stomach, Jesus accomplished after 40 days of starvation. What Adam failed to do on a full stomach, that is, pass the test of temptation so as to advance to glory, pass that probation so as to uh, move to an, uh, the next level relationship with the Lord. He failed. Our first Adam failed. Jesus, however, after 40 days of starvation, satisfied these terms when he was tempted, he did not succumb. But as the second Adam, he prevailed. And thus his righteousness then, being satisfied, allowed him in his death then to transfer that righteousness to us and then we to be restored in a right relationship with him. A bit of covenantal theology undergirding the story here. So what do we have? We have the anointing of Jesus for ministry at his baptism. We have the probation of Jesus fulfilling the call of the second Adam. And then we have the inauguration of his teaching ministry. And the first words out of his mouth bring the light of the gospel to Zebulun and Naphtali. Isaiah's words are coming alive. Zebulun and Naphtali welcome Jesus Christ. The ordinary sons of Jacob now have witnessed the Messiah himself, the one whose scepter will never be wrenched from his grasp, the son of Judah, to Joseph to come, is in our midst. And these tribes that bracketed our first passage today, that represent a people beleaguered by sin and under the shadow of a fallen world, now that flickering light has become a sunrise of God's sovereign hand as they welcome the message of the King of Kings and his very presence among them. And saints, that same kingdom message remains with us today. You know, people said, you remember that one moment in Jesus' ministry where a guy laments and he said, you know, if you could just allow uh, someone who has died to see a resurrection, perhaps that would convince them that you are true and they would repent and believe. And Jesus says, never mind a miracle of that sort. They have the law and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Now, you may not have, we have not witnessed in time the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but what do we have? We have the law and the prophets. We have the written record. Peter, Jesus, they both say that this is superior indeed. That is to say that we have a light of the world incarnate shining through his word to us, and it is not dimmed in any way, even though we are 2,000 years removed from this moment. In fact, I'm making the argument in this message that the hope of the light of Christ grows brighter still with each year closer to his kingdom consummate. How much greater is the glory of Christ obvious to us in that he has preserved his church for 2,000 plus years? How much greater is the glory of Christ obvious to us in the fact that the message of repent and believe is still going forth and missionaries are sent even from this congregation to Mexico to call forth those who are appointed to believe, to turn to him. And money has been raised through this church and resources. We've heard reports from Ethiopia 
of beggars turning to Jesus Christ and single mothers and widows coming into the kingdom through the efforts there. Or the Cressmans reporting in from the corners of the earth like Malawi saying the message of repentant belief is resonating with the hearts of those who are without home and country, finding a home and a country in Jesus Christ and in his kingdom, in these refugee camps in that nation. What is all of this? In our experience today, it's further testimony that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and the outcasts, the Gentiles by the way of the sea, has, have received the message of the kingdom. Those like us in our own sin dwelling in darkness have seen in Jesus Christ and his gospel of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have seen a great light. And this light with each year that passes burns brighter still. My hope for this message is that it would set the tone of your soul for the next year. I guarantee you if you look merely at our everyday life, you'll have great opportunity for despair and discouragement. You might find yourself, if you do not avail yourself of the perspective of God's sovereignty in history, his dominion over time, succumbing to the gloom, anguish, contempt, darkness, oppression, and war that plagues our yet fallen world. But I want to turn us this year to the source, the perspective, the truth that Jesus Christ rules and reigns. And with that message and with that testimony, so is the uplifting power to behold him. Remember your great salvation. Look to his holy word. Trace, if you will, his dominion over uh, history, even through the pages of scripture. In examples like we've considered today, the fortunes of Zebulun and Naphtali and others. And as you do, be encouraged and inspired now to take that message to heart and to proclaim that message further still. What message? The same that Jesus spoke to Zebulun and Naphtali then, we proclaim even this morning, even this next year, Jesus was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we echo him this day. This message of repent and believe becomes the foundation of preaching for the church age. We had that age pre-Messiah. Now we're in the church age post-Messiah, these latter times. And this message is the foundation of the proclamation pointing the world, blinded in their sin, to this beacon of light the prophets spoke of, and then the sunrise at dawn with the incarnation. And as we do so, we call out, as just as Jesus and his disciples did, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ, turn from your sin. And so his word shines upon us today, and our hope, as the ordinary sons of Jacob, if you will, only grows brighter with each day closer to his return. The unfolding of God's decree through the ages, just uh, one aspect of which we have touched upon today, it has the power to lift our spirits above the immediate challenges of our daily travails, to view things from the perspective of covenant history, God's plan over time. May our devotion to our Messiah's legacy deepen this coming year. May our devotion to our Messiah's legacy deepen this coming year and with it our hope and faith rooted in his invincible sovereignty. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of the kingdom ringing forth from your scriptures and quickening our hearts as your spirit uses it to inspire and equip us 
for the task at hand. Lord, we are under no delusions. We live in a day fraught with trials and testing. But we also know that we have sufficient means to stand in days such as ours. And so to your scriptures we turn. We pray that they would be our close and constant and ever-growing companion this year as we welcome your calling to shine even in a dark society. We pray for a cosmic turning point to be recognized, Lord, in our day and age, or the cosmic turning point of your coming to be recognized in our day and age, and with it, an epic transformation. That you would move the peoples of our land, of our society, our own hearts, Lord, as far as there might be any unbelievers in the hearing of this message, from darkness to light. And that in so doing, you would fill their souls with overwhelming joy at the deliverance from the bondage of sin. And Lord, as they move forward, they would do so with the confidence of your decisive victory, defeating their sin and defeating their grave and commissioning your people to proclaim and echo the message of your kingdom until we return. Equip us for this task and convict us along the way. May we grow as a people faithful to you. May your faithfulness to us this last year inspire our obedience in the next. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.